But I think that pathologists are the ones to really lead the charge here because we're the ones who are focused on, I mean, pathophysiology, pathology, study of disease. We're the ones who focus on why a disease happens, what it looks like, and who better than a pathologist to explain why this race-based association is not correct. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Pathology at its core is a science, and science, of course, is based on data. But what happens when the data starts to contradict long-held medical beliefs? My guest today is Dr. Andrea Dayrup. Dr. Dayrup is a pathologist and one of the co-editors of Robin's Essential Pathology and Robin's Basic Pathology. Today, we're going to talk about her career from evolutionary biology into pathology, her work with Robbins, and much of her work with race in medicine and health disparities. All right, here's Dr. Andrea Dayrup. I heard you on the Diversify and Path podcast, and you were talking about how you're a fourth-generation PhD. So I'm curious about that because I know you initially studied ecology and evolutionary biology. So can you tell me what kind of what interested, what drew you to those fields? So when I say I'm a fourth generation PhD, we, I guess my great grandfather has a PhD in uh, economics and was one of the founders of the new school uh, in New York City. His wife was actually a PhD philosopher, which is very unusual for that generation, but she was a stay-at-home mom and took care of their uh, seven kids. Uh, several of the women uh, went on to get PhDs and MDs. So there's one PhD economist, a PhD in zoology, uh, and an MD who was a pediatrician. And then my my grandfather uh, was a PhD chemist. Uh, my father, mother, stepmother, and uncle are all PhD chemists. So there was a strong feeling that that chemistry was a a, a safe place to go. It was it was well known. Mm-hmm. Now biology is something that's always really interested me. I grew up in Florida. Uh, We had an alligator that lived in our backyard. I grew up playing with snakes and bird watching because when you have a three foot tall great blue heron in your backyard, it's hard not to get drawn into bird watching. So I'd always loved nature. And when I got to Princeton, you know, the whole world was just, just opened up. It was just amazing to me. The intellectual ferment that was before me and everything was just so exciting and so enticing. I got very interested in history and had planned on on majoring in history. Now, my mother, who's a PhD chemist, immediately said, we didn't send you to Princeton so you could be a history major. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> I was a little rebellious and I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to, to, I love history. It's great. And I won a Rotary uh-huh. International uh, Scholarship to study at the Sorbonne for a year. And I studied history while I was there. But science has always been something that was just really part of my part of my makeup, part of how I view the world is in a in a scientific way. And part of that just comes from the conversations around the dinner table with my parents, because everything was analyzed and and discussed using the scientific method. What are the data for this and why is this? So science was very much a part of my worldview. And as I got deeper into history, it seemed to me that the scientific method didn't apply as well uh, to that aspect of the humanities, that we have the thing that happened 
And then you have the first history that's written of it, as we know, often by the victors. And then you have the revisionist history. And then there's the re-revision history and then the, the re-revisionist. And it just, it seemed to me that it was very difficult to get at what is truth. And I, I quite naively thought that uh, science would take me uh, to closer to the truth uh, than I would find in the humanities. And so when I returned to Princeton after my year studying history uh, at the Sorbonne, uh, I sort of waffled back and forth between biology and chemistry, ended up going with chemistry my junior year uh, in a biochemistry lab looking at protein folding. And after a year of that, just thought it wasn't vital enough to me. It, it, didn't, it didn't breathe to me in the way that nature always had. And I switched into really, you know, the when you think about biology and the way it was at Princeton, you had molecular uh, biology and you had organismal biology. And organismal biology was ecology and evolutionary biology. That was, that was looking at organisms, basically. Uh-huh. And okay. uh, I opted for uh, ecology and evolutionary biology because of my background in biochemistry, was pulled into a lab doing a, a really a really cool project uh, with Dr. Martin Kreitman, who uh, was one of the uh, MacArthur Genius uh, Fellows, and just got my teeth into it and really got involved in, in ecology and evolutionary biology, applied for a National Science Foundation fellowship, planned on going into evolutionary biology for graduate school, therein to become the fourth generation PhD and become a teacher like all of my my uh, my family. This is kind of silly, but you, you mentioned that there's you had an alligator in the backyard. Did, yes. Did the, uh, did the alligator have a name? No, we had sort of itinerant alligators that would uh, arrive and and leave. So I grew up in in Gainesville, Florida, home of the fighting gators, right. uh, and we lived on a about a one acre lot that at the time was really surrounded by woods. It has now been really built up uh, and uh, there are not a lot of woods or animals or, or nature in that neighborhood anymore. But at the time we had, a there was a very large pond, probably about an acre pond that spanned a part of our property. And we would occasionally see alligators go by. When I would come home late at night, for some reason, we would leave the house locked, but the, the back doors were, were unlocked over by the pond, and I would stroll past them, hoping not to step on an alligator. And we had rattlesnakes and coral snakes, and there were all sorts of, of dangerous, scary things. Wow. Okay. All right. And you know that you're studying evolutionary biology. I mean, it, it seems like that, that part of you kind of stuck with you until sort of the present day, because you're kind of revisiting a bit of that, which I think we'll probably talk about a, a little bit later. I I loved uh, evolutionary biology. I I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Uh, And there's just, there's just so much to learn. Uh, But once evolutionary biology was in my rearview mirror and I was focused on medical research, I didn't really think about it very much. I didn't do a lot of reading on it. Uh, There's some really interesting books that I've been reading recently, like uh, Sapiens, which talks a lot about uh, sort of the more recent uh, human evolutionary biology. But I didn't really think about it very much. I was focused on what I was doing. But one of the things that I, I like about uh, my life is that I've done so many different things, but even when something's in the rearview mirror, it's still visible. So as I became more and more focused on 
uh, race-based medicine and looking at the issue of uh, geographic ancestry and how that related to uh, how we discuss socially defined race, to be able to bring back what I, I knew about evolutionary biology and to thereby communicate effectively with uh, Dr. Joseph Graves Jr., who's the evolutionary biologist with whom I'm doing a lot of collaborations these days. It, it was just great uh, to have that uh, in my in my packet of tools. Sure, sure. I mean, I've had, I think, experiences like that too, things that I've been interested in in the past and maybe not so much anymore, but kind of the, um, not so much the subject matter, but kind of the method of studying it kind of stays with you, I think. Yeah, uh, and the, it just the, the, the being aware that it exists. I, I think that mm -hmm. we really don't teach enough about evolutionary biology uh, in school. And I think that contributes to a lot of misconceptions about socially defined race and differences in various populations. Uh, and I, I think there, there could and should be more evolutionary biology and, and anthropology uh, in K through 12 and undergraduate medical uh, undergraduate education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Let's go through kind of the time then from, from Princeton until you go to the University of Chicago. So kind of take me through that, that time in between there. So the, the time between, I mean, I took a gap year. I graduated from Princeton in uh, 1991 and okay. had an, just an incredible experience studying marine biology uh, in Puget Sound at the University of Washington's uh, Friday Harbor Laboratories. My uh, great aunt had was the one who had a PhD in zoology, and that was her graduation gift to me. And it was it was fantastic. And that was where I got the idea for my National Science Foundation proposal, which was to look at the algae that circles the Antarctic. In a, there's a, a current that runs around uh, Antarctica, and I wanted to look at uh, take samples uh, from this particular species of alga and look to see how it evolved in different areas, different uh, you know parts of the world, but also different micro uh, environments. Uh, so it was a fantastic experience. Uh, immediately after I finished that, I hopped on a plane for a five-month backpacking trip around Asia. Uh, I started off L.A. and then the it was a around the Pacific uh, airplane ticket, which then went to Honolulu, Hong Kong. Bangkok, Singapore, uh, Jakarta, Denpasar, Sydney, Auckland, Honolulu, LA. And it was just, uh, I mean, I was backpacking. It was by myself. Uh, it was, you know, I was just doing whatever came up. I ended up spending two weeks in a Buddhist monastery. I learned to scuba dive, uh, not at the monastery. Uh, and then I got to dive the Great Barrier Reef back in 1992 uh, when oh, wow. there was, it was still in, you know, really good shape. Yeah. Uh, and just, it was, it was an incredible experience. Like why, why did you, how did you come up with the idea to just, just, or did you just one day, like, I'm going to go to Asia and backpack? Like, how did that come up? Um, I'd already spent a fair amount of time in Europe. I backpacked there when I was 19, uh, for a summer. And then of course I lived in Paris for a year, uh, and it had traveled a, a fair amount in Europe. Uh, and I'm half Chinese but had never really felt a pull towards China. In fact, uh, I studied multiple languages at Princeton, uh, and one of them was Japanese, which seems odd for someone who's, uh, who's Chinese, because I do actually, or I did at that time, have a few relatives still in Hong Kong. 
but I did a Japanese martial art uh, called Aikido. And I've always loved learning languages and thought that the best way to connect with someone is to know at least a little bit of their language. And so I have studied French, German, Italian, Spanish, Japanese. Uh, when I was in Indonesia, I learned a little Indonesian. I've learned a little Dutch, a little Greek. You know, just a little wow. something to, to say I, I respect your culture. And, and it also just tells you a lot about uh, how – a society looks at things. It, it really differs. Uh, the use of the subjunctive, for example, in Spanish and in French compared to English. Uh, but uh, regardless, I I was aware through readings that I'd done in high school under the sort of the guidance of a, a sort of a, a mystical new age uh, science teacher about uh, Buddhist thought and was aware that the way that we look at the world uh, is is very much determined by our culture. And, you know, America has a very uh, strong culture in dualism. So there's good versus evil. And I knew that in Asia, this dualism was not as prominent. There was more of an idea that something was mindful or perhaps not mindful, but there wasn't necessarily a value judgment. And I really wanted to go to Asia and see some of a different way of being uh, with the thought that I wanted to go before my brain was completely developed and had become too uh, atherosclerotic, perhaps in a way, through you know additional uh, university uh, education. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it was it was um, it was a transformational experience for me. I, you know, it was, it was, it was a really valuable, um, it was a really valid, valuable experience. Yeah, I can see that. that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. So you, you said you took the gap year and, and, and then what happened? So before I left for, for Asia, I applied to graduate schools in evolutionary biology, applied to the top three evolutionary biology departments in the country, which were at that time UC Davis, uh, Cornell, and University of Chicago. And it turned out that my advisor from Princeton was leaving Princeton to go to University of Chicago. So I got into all three and decided to go to Chicago uh, and work with Dr. Kreitman uh, uh, even further. He did some amazing work with uh, molecular uh, genetic evolution. Uh, he, <laughs> the lab that, that I did my senior thesis in at Princeton uh, still had his first PCR machine, which was three water baths. Uh, he began doing PCR back at a time when there were no Perkin Elmer machines, although we did actually have them in our lab. And, and the sort of machines that I used oh. in, in graduate school were are actually, I, I volunteer at a local high school, and uh, the, the t- sort of machine that we had in the Kreitman lab at Princeton are ones that are now in public high schools in North Carolina. So it was, it was uh, quite rudimentary back then. So... I decided to uh, to work with Dr. Kreitman, and you know when I arrived in Chicago, it was you know once more I guess so much when I look back at it I feel like I was so naive and didn't I didn't know so much when I arrived at different places. There there was a lot I learned on my trip in Asia. There's a lot more I would have done differently if I knew than what I know now. Same with Princeton. I I mean, I had a great experience there, but there was so much there. And Chicago was the first big city I'd ever lived in. I'm from Gainesville, Florida, which at the time I grew up was about 100,000 people. I went to Princeton, which is a small school. Yes, I lived in Paris, but that was 
that was different. I mean, it was, it was actually, it was, it was pretty mind boggling being there. There was just so much going on, mm-hmm. but uh, Chicago really just opened my eyes. And the university of Chicago is just an incredible institution. Just as far as science goes, uh, the level of uh, thinking, uh, it was just, it was just really uh, quite remarkable. And while it was there, I, got interested in, in doing medical research. Uh, I talked about the sum in the Diversify uh, in Path podcast, but essentially had a friend who had a, a genetic illness, antithrombin-3 deficiency, and that got me interested in thinking about medical research, which I'd never really thought about before. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, we're, we're PhDs, we teach. The medicine was never really something that um, uh, we talked about doing, and it was never even mentioned to me as a possibility as I was growing up, but doing medical research seemed to me to be like a really powerful way to help people. And I was able to switch into the, um, to the MD PhD program uh, at University of Chicago. And that's just been fantastic. Was this at the time then that you met Dr. Kumar or, or did that happen later? So I, <laughs> I met Dr. Kumar Let's see, that would have been in probably March of 2000. So I had never really thought about pathology. I liked pathology. But my focus when I was looking at a specialty was uh, was I was thinking more about doing research. I was an MD, PhD, and I had become very interested in gene therapy. And I thought that uh, an ideal specialty for research, particularly in gene therapy, would be dermatology because uh, skin is uh, a fantastic uh, opportunity to perhaps take a skin graft from a patient uh, and then manipulate the genome in some way and then to, with a skin graft, return it to the patient. And so I thought I would do uh, a dermatology residency and uh, I didn't match. And a good friend of mine who was a pathologist said, oh, well, that's, that's fine. You really should be a pathologist anyway. Please come meet our new chairman. And that was uh, the first time I met uh, Dr. Kumar, who is, I'm, I'm so grateful that our paths crossed at that time. Uh, he is uh, just an amazing uh, person, just kind and, and brilliant and, and humble and just incredibly helpful to people. And he said, uh, I'm just starting here in Chicago. I would love to invite you to be part of this first class um, under, under my chairmanship. And he told me some of what his plans were. And I said, all right, sign me up. I'm here. And uh, it, was, it, was a really, it was a really great, once more, a really great experience. Okay. That was, that was pathology residency? Yes. So, yes, okay. I met him uh, right, right at, after I finished medical school. Got it. Okay. Okay. Now, going through residency there at University of Chicago, I mean, what what kind of like did you have interest in particular subspecialties or anything anything like that? How did how did that happen? Um, I think uh, one of the things that uh, you know, as many many people have noticed, what really brings you toward something is a mentor. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, there aren't very many people who, who wake up and like, oh, I really love glomeruli and I want to study glomeruli for the rest of my life. But if you work with really amazing renal pathologist, you're like, oh, you know, I see the possibilities. I see the way you think about it. I see the way your life is. This is what I want to do. And mm-hmm. I was working at the time. Uh, there was just a, a, just a fantastic pathologist there named uh, Tony Montag, who specialized in gynecologic pathology uh, as well as bone and soft tissue. 
And I just, I have so much uh, gratitude uh, to Dr. Montag. He, like Dr. Kumar, is just a very uh, kind and just brilliant person. Unfortunately, he he died of uh, prostate cancer about three years ago. But while I was at University of Chicago, he was a you know tremendous support and friend. Uh, so I got I got interested in bone and soft tissue pathology, and part of this as well was you know you choose which surgeons you'd like to work with uh, if you're going to be a surgical pathologist. And the orthopedic oncologists were just so much fun. I mean, Mike Simon, who trained with uh, Enikin in, in Florida, uh, Dr. Simon was just an amazing uh, mentor uh, as well. I mean, I just, I've just had such good fortune to meet such generous and kind, uh, supportive uh, individuals in my training. So Dr. Simon and Dr. Peabody, who trained with him, uh, were the orthopedic surgeons that I, I worked with at Chicago. And, and when you see that, and when you're somewhat naive and you haven't seen a whole lot of the world, you think, oh, they're all like this, right? And that has actually been my experience. So the orthopedic uh, oncologists I've worked with have always been just tr- terrific guys, because actually all of the ones I've worked with have been men. Uh, although uh, I, I do know that, that there are increasing numbers of women going into orthopedic uh, pathology. But uh, yeah, so so that was where I got into bone and soft tissue. And I, I've always looked towards having uh, female mentors when I can. So my PhD advisor, uh, Dr. Nancy Schwartz, uh, is a biochemist who was also the uh, one of, I think she was the associate dean of graduate affairs at University of Chicago. And my mentor for fellowship was Dr. Sharon Weiss. And I just, there's something about working with really strong women, which is just really, I think, great for women trainees. Yeah, for sure. I I think I can understand that. I want to kind of skip ahead then to now you're at Duke University now, and I know there is, there are a lot of things that kind of happened in between (laughs) And I know you went through all of that kind of on the Diversifying Path podcast. So I'll refer everyone to that episode to learn about all those things in between. At at Duke, you're a professor of pathology. And so this brings back the the teaching aspect that you said was sort of always kind of a part of you. But is this the first place then that you were kind of formally teaching? No, I actually, I have loved teaching my whole life. And so when I was in, uh, in college, I was a soccer coach. I taught French. Uh, I, tutored, I tutored one of the graduate students in French. When I lived in Paris, I taught English as a second language uh, to a, a Chinese student. When I was a graduate student at University of Chicago, I did a lot of teaching. I, mean, I didn't need to because I had a fellowship, but I did healthcare for the poor, which was a fantastic course. And at, at that uh, state uh, Senator Barack Obama came to lecture to our course, and that was when we – the first time I heard Obama talk about you know universal health care. And uh, oh, wow. uh, so that was – yeah, that was back at, when I was a TA uh, at University of Chicago. I taught immunology and scientific ethics, and then when I was a resident, I went to the uh, professor who taught pathology. I said, is there any lecture topic that you can't find someone to lecture on? He said, uh, prostate pathology. No one wants to lecture on prostate pathology. I said, okay, I'll do that one. And then another year I did molecular diagnostics, you know, because I just, I love teaching. And 
when I was at uh, Emory, I had a very small role. I mean, there was some resident teaching, obviously, but the the medical school, you know, you'd come in, you'd give your one or two lectures and leave. So I wasn't tremendously involved there. But I, I really got, I think I, I really dived deeply into medical education uh, at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine, Greenville. So I was in Greenville uh, doing some private uh, practice pathology. Uh, I was there for about four years after I left Emory. And quickly after I got there, I thought, you know, private practice is not for me. It's just, it's, it's, not, it's not where my, my heart lies. And there are a variety of reasons why I, I, I sort of went into that position. Uh, but about, about six months after I got there, I was like, okay, it's time to move on. But they said, you know, we're going to start a new medical school here, and we'd love it if you would stay because we don't have anyone here who does academics. We're a community hospital. So I said, okay, uh, I'll do that. And so I was the second-year course, uh, I guess the second-year academic director for for a while. I, I also was ahead of some of the courses as we developed it. And we were developing this from the ground up. I mean, there was nothing there. We were writing test questions. We were coming up with how we were going to teach, were we going to lecture. There were no specimens to show students. There were no lectures in the can. So you couldn't just say, well, watch this lecture and then we'll have an active learning session because we didn't have any lectures already done. Uh, so there was just so much to do. And just made, you know, had some fantastic colleagues, Dr. Shanna Williams, uh, who's an anatomist, who's still at uh, University of South Carolina School of Medicine, Greenville, just an amazing, talented um, uh, educator. But that was when I really got into education. But as, as many of you know, after I'd been there for about four years, uh, I ended up marrying a, a professional mandolin player who lives in rural North Carolina. And so I, I retired at the age of 45 to now live on on 35 acres on the Rocky River with our uh, seven ducks, two dogs, and probably about 50,000 honeybees. And, um, and no you know, alligators? I was, I've, no alligators. Um, not <laughs> okay. even any uh, poisonous snakes. Um, we do have... Weird. Uh, oh, no, that's not true. We do have copperheads. We do have the occasional copperhead. Uh, okay. But um, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty safe place. And I was just going to... I've known all my life that life is not predictable and we don't, we're not guaranteed any certain number of years on the planet. And I never intended to work as a pathologist till I was, you know, 65 or 70. Uh, I wanted to do it while it was fun and interesting and it was rewarding for me. And when it wasn't, I would do something else. And at the age of 45, I said, well, I'm, I'm going to go live on this farm and see what, the world has for me. And it turned out that what the world had for me was a teaching position at Duke. Uh, so they approached me and asked if I would be willing to be the course director for their pathology course. I have, uh, it was because I, there was a, a woman who was at my, um, uh, who was in the MD PhD program with me at University of Chicago who became a pathologist and who was at Duke. And so she let them know I was in the area and I ended up taking the position. Uh, and it's, um, it's been quite a ride. It's, it's, it's one of those, it's like a, a flower that just keeps unfolding. There are just more and more things that appear that I dive into. So yes, that's what I'm currently doing is I, I teach at Duke. I don't have any clinical responsibilities. Mm, okay. I see. Now, during your time there at Duke, uh, this was, it, it, I think, kind of your first experience with the issue of race in medicine or race in medical education, because there was kind of 
from from the way I understand it, there was sort of a movement to kind of remove race from from educational materials. Is that am I am I kind of summarizing that correctly? I don't know if that's how I would think about it. Um, okay, I would say so. This was so I started at Duke in 2015, and I think at that time many of us were incredibly naive about the impact of race-based medicine. I, I am half Chinese, but I'm, I'm white presenting. I'm, I'm seen by, you know, most of the world who, who see me, see me as, as someone who is white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I recently did the Teaching for Equity Fellowship at, um, at Duke, which is a, a year-long educational experience. And one of the uh, exercises was for us to talk about how we thought of uh, our race or how we how we described our race and almost everyone who is white or white presenting was like i don't think about race at all i mean i think of myself as a pediatrician or mother of two or it was you know a researcher but the people who come from different backgrounds you know so african descent or hispanic they're like i i don't i don't go on a minute or an hour in the day when I don't, I don't think about, I know my race. I mean, it's, it's present. It's, I I see it. It's, it's part of my existence. And so I had the privilege throughout my entire education of not really thinking about race. And what I had learned about race was uh, primarily through uh, medicine, through Robin's, Robin's pathology textbook, uh, even the very first edition from uh, 1974 of uh, Robin's Pathologic Basis of Disease mentions the link between keloids and African descent, and it had expanded uh, since then because that's that's part of, I believe, the systemic racism in, in medicine. And I'm actually reading a, a book right now, which is incredibly challenging. It's called uh, Medical Apartheid. Uh, it's by uh, Harriet Washington talking about uh, the history of medicine uh, for African Americans, and it's it's incredibly painful to read. And there's been so much of science that has labeled populations as inferior. As I mean, you know, not even the sort of subtle things that we see. I mean, or not so subtle things we see in Robbins, where we talk about the thirty or maybe twenty diseases that are more common or have a a worse prognosis in individuals of African descent with this suggestion that they have bad genes, the, the, the myth of the sick African uh, of, you know, non-compliance mm-hmm. or risky behaviors. I mean, all of this, it's, uh, I do recommend this book, Medical Apartheid, even though it is, it is very challenging to read. Okay. And it's, um, so I, I believed all of these things that I read that, and that I believed that, knowing the different racial associations uh, with me- with different diseases was important because this was going to be how you came up with the differential diagnosis. So if, uh, and this can have tragic consequences, but if a uh, European American child comes in and, and they have uh, recurrent bouts of uh, pneumonia, uh, then you start thinking, I wonder if their cystic fibrosis, you know, they have a different allele that wasn't picked up on newborn screening. Right, but if the same individual has uh, is Hispanic or has uh, is of African descent, then you don't think that. You just think, oh, you know, maybe uh, they're in a dirty environment. They're they're in a they're they're in a crowded home, and they're, mm-hmm. they're maybe there's some sort of mistreatment. So it, it has a very profound effect uh, on patients. So 
I hadn't thought about this at all because it, it was in the textbook. And, and for me, I'm a big believer in what is written in textbooks, particularly what's written in Robbins. And I'll say that as, as someone who's one of the Robbins editors is that we put so much right. work into editing and the goal, I mean, we don't, we don't cite references, right? Because Robbins is the reference. If it's in Robbins, then it's true. And so it was very challenging for me when I started working on Robbins to, to go to, you know, Dr. Kumar and Dr. Abbas and say, hey, you know, this isn't Robbins, but it's not true. This thing about keloids and African-Americans, it's not true because it, it was in Robbins. It had to be true. So the, the instant that I first started really looking at this uh, was uh, the course director for a longitudinal course we have at Duke called Cultural Determinants of Health and Health Disparities, Dr. Kenyon Raley you know, met with the first year course directors and said, we have to look at how you're, we address race in the curriculum. And he was just starting that course. So the course is only, I think, four years old now. So he was, he was just uh, getting that started. And to me, this was a completely novel idea because I really thought all of this was important. And I, I didn't include race or ethnicity in, in all of my vignettes and my multiple choice questions or in my website cases. But I did in the in the ones that I took from case reports because they were all in the case reports. Case report would say a 45-year-old, uh, you know, Hispanic woman. And what's she going to present with? Well, she's going to present with diabetes and atherosclerosis, right? <laughs> and as I talked with Dr. Raley, it was it was really hard for me to recognize the validity of what he was saying. Even though as an evolutionary biologist, right, with this training, I should have been very aware that modern humans don't have biologic race, that to say that this is significant in, you know, this is a significant uh, increase in disease in this population opposed to that population is because of biological race. And therefore, we can extrapolate about a whole lot of other things. Clearly, if you just step back and look at it, that's completely irrational. But it was part of the the Kool-Aid I was drinking. And it's only been really uh, for me, I think that the when I when Dr. Rayleigh first suggested to to all of us that we look at race in the curriculum, I had a long meeting with him. I was resistant to it. Uh, I argued with him about it. But then I was like, fine, I'm going to remove race and ethnicity. And we'll see and let me see how things develop. Well, I need to put it back, whatever. And I realized that. It was right to remove it, but I didn't understand as much. I mean, it was more like, okay, dodged a bullet. I did something that don't really understand why I did it, but it's, it's, it's better, right? It's better for our students. It's better for their patients. It was only when I started working on the disparities document for the Duke medical students and, and actually did the research, did the deep dive into why there were these disparities uh, based on socially defined race and I was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, I, I say this in the keloid video that when I started to do the, quote, deep dive into keloids and African descent, I thought there would be absolutely nothing to find because I knew in my bones, because I had learned this 25 years ago at the University of Chicago, that keloids were more common in individuals of African descent. I mean, it's, you know, how can you do a deep dive into something that you know is true? And then as I did this deep dive, I went further and further back into the literature. I was like, wow, this is this falsehood and it's and it's not just that it's it's just as wrong but if you look at it you know what what is this saying you know you read these articles they talk about the swarthy dark thick heavy skin oily skin of of people of african descent there's clearly 
racism in it. There's clearly this is, you know, an ugly thing. And then they're going to develop these huge, you know, scars and, and it's, and it's disfiguring. And when you look at the data and you say, you know, the incidence of keloids in Swiss adults is very close to the incidence in a particular subset of Congolese minors. So how, how are we making this association? So it's, it's really been incredibly eye-opening to me to look at the data. Um, and that's what's convinced me so much. Mm-hmm. I think this this story is important because it shows that you you can completely think one thing, and then, like you said, you look at the data or you look at new evidence or something. You can change your mind and you can have a different opinion about it. I mean, this has happened to me as well. I mean, we'll go back again to Dr. Michael Williams. Uh, just in talking to him and a lot of things, that's really opened my eyes and, and some other people as well. But that's opened my eyes to some things that I didn't understand or I thought I understood, but was wrong. And it's okay to do that. I think this this story kind of points that out. I, I think there are a couple things that are important. And one is that we have had the luxury of not seeing and we we it's it is an incredible luxury uh, and privilege to not see and i think that we're at a point where many of us are becoming better at looking and it's yes. really important for us to do this as uh, individuals who are allies or co-conspirators so that we can help each other to see, because I think for, you know, individuals of African descent or Hispanic or uh, uh, indigenous peoples, they have seen it for generations. And, and it's from my teaching for equity fellowship, I know how galling it is to have a bunch of People standing around going, I, I don't know what to do. I, I, I didn't. I, I didn't know this happened. When if you just think for a moment and look around at at the world that we have created, the inequity is so obvious. So a lot of my focus is on how do we actively change this? What can we do to change it? So it's not just let's write another paper about it and think about it. It's like what do we do? So you know, writing the the authors of the keloid section of up to date please watch my video. You know, let me keep emailing mm-hmm. you. Let me mention this in a New England Journal article until it, until it gets changed because it's, it's important. Uh, now that you see it, you have to change it. And I think right. the other thing is that it's important for, as you mentioned, for people to, to not beat themselves up about what they haven't done, right? So, so the, the three uh, co-editors of Robin's Basic Pathology are just like, oh my gosh, we this never occurred to us. We, we never saw this. We should have done this decades ago. Yes, let's fix right. it, right? And so I think that's one thing that's been really gratifying for me is that the talks that Dr. Graves and I have been giving around the country is that we'll hear from people. You know, I heard from a, a medical student who said, you know, my, my research project was to look at differences in endometrial carcinoma in a particular uh, city based on race. And after hearing your talk, I thought I don't want to contribute to that biologic definition of race, but instead to focus on a way that we can work on better diagnosis, better treatment for for all of these. How do we find the lesion, right? And then there's been editors of other uh, textbooks who've said, now that I've heard this, when we do our revision, we're going to look at how we address race. And so that that for me is is each 
each person can do so much, you know, I mean, it's like, we all can do something. And seeing other people pick this up and move it, I just, I just found out from, um, there was a, a family medicine doctor who saw my keloids video and had seen my posts on on Twitter about how up to date had, had finally changed uh, the association with African descent, and she emailed Dynamed, which is a, a resource similar to Up to Date, and just said, "Please watch this video. Uh, your treatment of uh, race in keloids is not appropriate." And they wrote back wow. and said, "Thank you very much, and we've made these changes." And that's one of the reasons why I do this on YouTube is because I know that then people can just forward them. You can just say, hey, this is good. Take a look at this. And I think that that makes it easy for for people to to, to eat for everybody to do something uh, to, to have access to these videos. Yeah, for sure. And I will definitely link, uh, you know, your website with all those videos. I'll link those in the show notes so everybody can watch them if they haven't already seen them. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Andrea Dayrup. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now back to Dr. Andrea Dayrup on the People of Pathology podcast. Now, one of the, I think one of the major ways that you're trying to help change things like this is the work that you're doing with Robbins, and you mentioned a little bit of that already, but I kind of want to go to back to the beginning of that. So how was it that you got involved as a, a author or I guess co-editor? I mean, Dr. Kumar must have remembered you from Chicago. <laughs> you know, it, I, I don't know what this says about me, but but I seem to be memorable somehow. Okay. Um, but uh, uh, I I have this this I, I guess one one of one personality trait of mine is that I have absolutely no fear about reaching out to people. Uh, the talk that Dr. Graves and I did to the National Board of Medical Examiners uh, came because I knew about their use of race-based medicine uh, and of the use of race and ethnicity in their questions. And so I, I was like, I reached out to someone at APC. I'm like, who was that guy from MBME who spoke at our meeting two years ago? Because I want to email him. And and so I I, I found his contact and I just cold called him. I just, I just called his cell phone number and <laughs> I was like, hi, I'm Andrea Dayrup and I'm, you know, uh, the course director of pathology at Duke you know, University. And I'd like to talk with you about race-based medicine and in uh, the step one exams. And of course he was like, uh, who is this? <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> through that and discussions and, and me showing him the, you know, the, the video that I did, um, my first grand rounds at Duke, that was how we got our first invitation to speak uh, to the NBME uh, test development committee. And then we'll be speaking at their uh, national uh, meeting uh, in June as well. But with Dr. Kumar, I was just, whenever I found something in the textbook that was an error needed to be fixed. I would just send him an email and <laughs> say, hey, Dr. Kumar, on you know page 302, uh, it says this, but it really should be the beta subunit, not the alpha subunit. And, I, you know, and then the next year we'd come along and I'd see that it hadn't been fixed on the online one. I mean, you don't expect that you know, the text one should get fixed relatively quickly, but the online one should be done relatively fast. And I'd email again, oh, by the way, you know, we're looking at this again, and it still hasn't been fixed. So I think I was sort of on on his mind as a medical educator uh, at that point. Uh, and 
so it's a sort of a triumvirate of uh, um, Vinay Kumar, Abul Abbas, and John Astor, and they decided they wanted to come up with another Robbins title. So you're familiar with Pathologic Basis of Disease, which is, you know, the Papa Bear. I mean, it's 1,450 right. pages. The Big Robbins. The Big Robbins. And then there is Basic Pathology, which is about 850 pages. And then it used to be, so that used to be Mama Bear. And then Baby Bear was uh, the pocket, the pocket Robbins you could put in your white coat and go from room hmm. to room on the wards. Okay. And they wanted to have one that was, uh, had a, was between Robin's based pathology and a pocketbook. So this was going to be Robin's essential pathology weighing in at about 300 some odd pages with the idea that as more and more medical schools were shifting towards an integrated curriculum, there was less and less time for pathology and students were overwhelmed well they were certainly overwhelmed by big robins but even uh pathology uh, even basic pathology seemed too much so how could we narrow it down because the goal is to get this amazing resource right so this is something that's robin's pathologic basis of diseases in its 10th edition uh, robin's base pathology is is work we're working on the 11th edition so i mean it's got decades of thinking and uh, and history to it and editing. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing book. So how do you get the the most important aspects of that to medical students who are less inclined to read uh, these days than, you know, I was as a medical student. I mean, I, you know, everyone I know, we, we all, I mean, reading was not a problem, but but a lot of medical students now will say, well, that's not my learning style. I want to watch a video. So to come up with a book that was more clinically oriented, was slimmer, so more focused. And also the goal was to have, for part of the, the clinical aspect, was to have associated online cases. And one of the ways that we teach at Duke is we have a pathology website, uh, which, is, it, which is easy to find and it's accessible to anybody, which is clinical vignettes with virtual microscopy and gross specimen images and radiology and multiple choice questions and laboratory values, all that. And Dr. Kumar had started uh, doing something like this while he was at UT Southwestern. And they wanted to have this in the book. They wanted to have online cases. And so they asked uh, several uh, individuals at different universities to uh, do work up two of them. Here are two cases, work them up. And so I, I worked mine up. And after that, Dr. Kumar said, we've talked amongst ourselves and we want you to do all of them. Originally, the idea had been we would each do a third. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're talking about like 80 cases. That's a huge amount of work. Wow. But for me, the opportunity, I mean, what, what's, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm driven by the opportunity to work with people. I'm, I'm just now finishing a project uh, with Dr. Barbara Nolman Richel uh, of the uh, Association for Pathology Chairs, UMED's Council. It's a project that initially I was not tremendously interested in, but the opportunity to work with her is why I, I got involved in it. And the opportunity to work with Dr. Kumar was credible opportunity. So I said, of course, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. You know, my husband thought I was crazy at the time. It's like, what are you, you're, you're supposed to be working half time and be, you know, semi-retired. I'm like, yes, but this is Robbins and, and, and we can, <laughs> we can change things. There, there are things that need to be done. Right. And uh, so I, I worked on that book with them and, and I, I, they've always treated me as an equal. There was never, you know, oh, you're the junior person. Dr. Kumar said, you know, we, we want someone who's not going to be a yes person. I said, well, you know, you don't have to worry about that with me. And I would tussle with them. I would push back on this out of the other. And 
when we finished that book, we were still finishing it up. And he said, well, you know, we'd, we'd really like for you to come on Robin's Basic Pathology. And at this point, my husband really thought I was crazy. And I said, you know, that's going to be a lot of even more work. But this is, for me, the chance to really address race and medicine. Because for, the, for essential pathology, I, I was still developing my own thinking around it. Uh, and was, you know, I, I got into a long discussion with Dr. Kumar. One of the, the test questions uh, had race-based medicine in it. It was 40-year-old Native American woman. And what does she have? She has gallstones, right? I said, you got to leave out Native American. No, no, it's more common in this population. I'm like, here are all the reasons why you need to leave. And so we went back and forth and back and forth and finally said, okay, fine. And that's another trait of mine is that I'm extremely persistent. And mm-hmm. uh, so... So I, I, there was a li- so essential pathology I felt was a little bit better, right, than Robin's basic pathology about race-based medicine. But it was it was my first book, and I I, I wasn't really rocking the the boat, but I was going to just we were going to take the boat out of the water for this one because I felt very strongly, and a lot of it was uh, part of it was based on the disparities document I put together for Duke students, which which I'm, I'm happy to share with people. Uh, you, they can email me and I, I can send it out. I've sent it out to, to a lot of people. But yeah. when I did that deep dive into it and, and, and the more I've learned, I'm just like, this is, this is bunk. This is, this is meaningless. We don't have biological race. How can we talk about this as if it's significant? Uh, and I continue to learn more and more every day. But so I addressed first, and the first thing I did was say, we need to bring in, someone to help with this. I need a, uh, someone who does genetics or evolutionary biology. And, and we first reached out to someone at Duke who was unable to do it, but she recommended Dr. Graves. And I, I could not be happier with the opportunity to work uh, with him. I've learned so much from him. He's an excellent colleague. As I said, we work well together. We've been, we've given like, well, we've been, we've, I don't know how many we've given, but we've been invited to over 25 presentations. Um, we have a New England Journal article out together and we have another article in press. So I, I wanted to have a scientific basis for this because it's a lot of work to do the science. I mean, the disparities document took me hours and hours and months and months to put together, but I needed to do it for myself because to me as a scientist, I couldn't just say, well, biological race doesn't exist, so remove this. I have to look at the data and see, just like with keloids, I had to look at the data myself to see. Mm-hmm. And Having done that and having worked with Dr. Graves, we can say, okay, here's the scientific flaw in this statement. Now we can remove this sentence or change the sentence to, to reflect this. So, so we've worked on that. Uh, one of the other things we've brought in in this textbook is this is a, the first time it has a section on health disparities. So we have it's an environmental section. We talk about health disparities uh, and cultural determinants of those and about the fact that biological race does not exist. So this is the first time that race has been discussed in that context uh, in Robbins. And then two other initiatives have been to increase representation of skin of color in the textbook. Uh, and that's been uh, really rewarding. Uh, you know, there've been, you know, a number of, of studies that looked at representation of skin of color and it's, it's woefully lacking, uh, not only in textbooks, but online, all, all the resources. And so we're, 
increasing representation, showing lesions in two skin types. I mean, even the keloids one, which you know you always show in, in someone of African descent, I'm like, well, we have to show it in lightly toned skin too, because we want to be sure people recognize it does not just happen in people of African descent. Right. And then uh, a final bit on that has been, you know, all of the cartoons in the textbook showed primarily white men. Uh, there were, I think there was one white woman uh, in as a cartoon, perhaps showing uh, long-term consequences of diabetes or consequences of smoking. And there's a, you know, cartoon of a drawing of an individual. And I'm like, you know, they're all, they're all, every single one of them is white. (laughs) So how to do this mindfully and the end result, what we've tried to do is to not show any race or Gender gender is creeping in. I, I think I think we'll probably deal with that a lot better uh, in the uh, in the twelfth edition. Uh, but in this one, at least to just show an outline of a human, and not to show basically all white men because it doesn't send the right message. It's not useful. It's not appropriate. So that's mm-hmm. something. I mean, there and there just so much we're doing for this. We've also brought in um, laboratory tests. Uh, which I know is not really related to race, but which is so important to bring in laboratory medicine into the curriculum. And this has been based on the project I mentioned earlier with Dr. Norman Ritchell uh, is a laboratory uh, test project. So it, it's going to be a really uh, incredible textbook when it comes out. And I'm, I'm really proud uh, to have been part of its development. Yeah, you should be. I mean, one of the things I've heard you say about this is you're, you're doing it not to be uh, politically correct, but to be scientifically correct and as someone who i mean you've sent me the disparities document which just so everyone realizes this is something like 80 pages and so you're yeah, you're 80, very big 85, on collecting. <laughs> 85 okay you're very big into collecting the scientific data i mean like you said earlier the, the deep dive that's that's kind of what you're all about I mean, as far as the kind of your, your ideas with, with changing Robbins and with the disparities document now, like what, what, what has been the response like from, I, I don't know, I, I guess like other specialties or something like that. Have you heard anything like that? It's actually been, it's, it's been incredible. Uh, actually, we, you know, because I'm a pathologist, we started off doing pathology departments, but uh, there's been this huge clamor at Duke for us to present. So we've done already Duke ophthalmology, pediatrics, and neurology. We'll be doing family medicine and dermatology. Uh, we've been invited to critical care uh, at a university in New York. Actually, we got invited to present at a maternal fetal medicine uh, national conference in June. And there's there's just been and we're doing a pediatrics department at Hopkins as well and and this is as i think it should be i really think that this first of all this information is very important for all physicians but i think that pathologists are the ones to really lead the charge here because we're the ones who are focused on i mean pathophysiology pathology study of disease we're the ones who focus on why a disease happens what it looks like and who better than a pathologist to explain why this race-based association is not correct and why you need to do this screening test on both of these individuals, uh, not just the one uh, who's of European descent. I think that pathologists, because we're also, you know, the doctor's doctor and we're the ones who uh, are references to, to many of our colleagues, I think to encourage them to turn to us and to use our voice and to 
And, and, and first, you know, we have to unlearn the race-based medicine so we can communicate it. I have a, a colleague who's Chinese, and she said that now she's finally started pushing back when she hears, oh, this is more common in Asians. And so she is, um, by looking at it, and, and, and like me, she'd never thought about it. You know, it was just, it was something she learned. This is more common right. in Asians. And so I think we as pathologists, hearing this and, and reading this and understanding it, uh, can have a tremendous impact uh, on our colleagues and, at, you know, at, at tumor boards when they say, well, you know, it's very unusual for this tumor to be seen in African-American. Well, actually, you know, biological race doesn't exist. And here is why it might have been underrepresented. In this, you know, I mean, there, there are so many things that we can do. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the response has been uh, tremendous. Uh, and I'm also really excited. Uh, I've, I've just I mean, literally, like in the last 72 hours have started collaboration with Dr. Marissa White at Johns Hopkins Pathology, looking at designing some workshops uh, for looking at race and medicine, uh, something she's done with, uh, I guess, uh, several resident groups. Uh, we're going to be doing this at the uh, Stanford uh, DEI Symposium, and we hope to do this as well at the Association of Pathology Chairs meeting in July. But to build an educational resource that departments can use for thinking about how to address and think about uh, and actively learn about race and medicine and some, a resource that can be used not just by pathologists, but every department, surgery, neurology, internal medicine, uh, looking at race in, in research, uh, looking at uh, testing, things like that. So I think this is going to be a really fruitful collaboration as well, and I'm very excited about that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I love the idea that, like you said, pathology is leading the charge. I mean, as a lot of people have said, pathology is the basis of all medicine. So it's it's very appropriate that pathology should be doing this, especially for something that's this big and this important. So I, I love the idea that, that that this is happening. Yes. Now, kind of the last thing I want to talk about, you mentioned Dr. Joseph Graves Jr. a couple of times, mm-hmm. and in, and I know the two of you uh, in addition to these grand rounds talks, which I believe at least one of them is, is also on your website, uh, but yep. you recently published a paper uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, and this is called Racial Biology and Medical Misconceptions. Now, what was what was kind of the origin of this paper? Like, how, how did that start? Well, it's actually, it's funny. It never had really occurred to me uh, that, that this was an unusual sort of thing, uh, until someone on my Twitter feed said that I'd accomplished the equivalent of, I guess, climbing blind in a snowstorm to the top of Mount Everest to have a pathologist as a co-author on a New England Journal article. Uh, but if you think about it, it's a pathologist and evolutionary biologist that makes it even more uh, of a, of a strange, uh, mm-hmm. partnership. But this was something where Dr. Graves, uh, who is just, uh, I mean, he's, he's incredibly well-published, uh, an expert in uh, race and, and evolutionary biology and race and medicine. Uh, he's written three books. He's got a proposal for a four that he's, he's working on now. Uh, he's, you know, a leader in his field. And as part of that, he was invited to a roundtable at the New England Journal. And based on some of what he talked about, he talked about some of the grand rounds we've been doing. He was asked to write a perspectives piece. And he said, well, I'd like to do this, but I'd like to bring in Dr. Dayrup. And that is one of the, the things that we do in our collaboration, which is really good, is that 
I, I see, you know, Darup and Graves and Graves and Darup as being a key focus that this is not the Darup show or the Graves show. We work together. So he asked me to be part of this. And uh, it was uh, it, it's it's I think it's a very nice piece because I think it brings evolutionary biology to physicians in a medical context that helps them to understand better. Uh, what the challenges are of race-based medicine. In the paper, there's there's a quote, therein lies the largest racial misconception still operative in the medical community. Socially defined races continue to be viewed as if they are an accurate reflection of biologic variation within our species. Yeah. yeah. That was, all right, can, can you talk about uh, kind of the, the meaning behind that? Yeah, I mean, it's it is something I think I've alluded to a few times uh, just in this podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you if you watch one of our grand rounds talks, and as you mentioned, there's a there's a link to one on my website. There's so much. Uh, yeah, I don't even I don't even know where to start. I mean, it's just the genetic variability in Africa, right, is greater than in any other continent, right? Because that's where life originated. It's had the longest time to, to evolve. Right. And to imagine that you could say something about someone of, you know, of African descent to look at that dark skin and say, ah, well, therefore you're more prone to sickle cell. Right. While ignoring the fact that what really is causing risk of sickle cell is evolutionary exposure to malaria. And that, I mean, if you just, I mean, if you just stop and think about it, so, uh, so Kenya falls into the sub-Saharan area for which there is hemoglobin S because of uh, malaria. But if you have someone who's descended from one of the, the, the mountain tribes in, in Kenya, right, if you're at a high altitude, there are no mosquitoes. So even, even if you know someone is from Kenya, which could have hemoglobin S, that's in the lowlands. Right. So we right. can't say anything about this, this socially defined race of African-American. If you look at Asian, which is even more challenging because it's huge as a geographic, uh, you know, huge geographically, which is how you get more and more genetic variation. A study was done looking at uh, South Asia, so predominantly India, and genetic variability in uh, in different groups. And it was based on caste, uh, language group, uh, geography. And I think of 260 groups they looked at, 81 groups had more uh, or had a greater loss of variability than is seen in the Ashkenazi Jewish population and the Finnish population, which are two groups that we typically uh, assign as having or assume to have much less um, genetic variation because of population bottlenecks. And so if we can't even say anything about different populations in India, how can we possibly think that there's anything we can say about Asians, right? I mean, right. so that this belief that remains that socially defined race is a useful clue in predicting uh, a diagnosis or in designing a therapy, right, is – is so clearly inaccurate, and yet it is still so prevalent. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, also from the paper, it says, letting go of the idea of race as a meaningful diagnostic parameter has been challenging for many physicians. 
which I, I guess kind of makes sense. I, it seems like just changing this mindset, which has been the case for generations and decades, I, I feel like this would take a long time to do. I, do you do you agree with that, or do you think it, it won't take that long? Um, I think there are some low hanging fruit uh, that we can we can address easily. I think that part of the challenge is uh, resistance to change in older generations. And that's, you know, that's been classic for, you know, for anything that you need to change, the older generations are are more Mm -hmm. resistant. I think that there is growing awareness of the scientific validity of, of what we are, are sharing. And I think that will help. I think, so I, I think the, the way to address this or the way that I'm hoping to do my part is, first of all, to stop teaching race-based medicine to physicians-to-be. So removing it from the textbook, from being explicit in uh, socially-defined race and cultural determinants of health, because we don't want to just pretend race doesn't exist because socially-defined race has a tremendous impact on health. So it's not right. – we don't, we don't pretend that race doesn't exist – we recognize it has a tremendous impact on health, but we recognize that it has to do with cultural determinants, not biological determinants. And I think by increasing education about uh, population differences and geographic ancestry and how these how how these develop, so we prevent increasing the belief in uh, race-based medicine, and then we work through education, uh, the grand rounds that we're giving uh, to attending physicians across the country to removing that belief from the older generations. So if we can prevent it on one end and get rid of it on the other, I think we're going to, to move towards a better place. And I think as I I think we can reach a tipping point where you have enough people who recognize uh, that race-based medicine is wrong and harmful that, it will move exponentially, sort of, sort of like climate change. If we can, we, you know, once the water warms to a certain degree, then then the glaciers will start falling into the ocean. Uh, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I think I think we can do it. Uh, I, I think it. And I'm not sure how long it will take. I've been really pleased to see how quickly some change has 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 moved. I mean, I think Robin's pathology going from not thinking about it at all to a textbook that addresses race-based medicine. I think our work with the NBME has been incredibly uh, useful. I'm meeting with the CEO of UWorld uh, in, I guess, a week or so to talk about the use of race in their questions. Uh, once more, being you know fearless, I just cold called him, and I was like, "Hey, can we talk about right. how you use race and ethnicity in your in your database?" Because I I believe in just asking people things, but I, I think that if everyone were to push a little bit, we could we could move this quickly. The thing is 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 to do it well and to do it mindfully. And that's why I do it from the from the science, from the data. I, I'm not doing this from an emotional plea, even though this is something I feel very passionate about and very emotional about the way that that I think that we can most effectively create change in this population is science and data. I wouldn't say that about the general population of the United States because we've shown that science and data, particularly if we look at uh, COVID, uh, is not right. 
been tremendously useful. But I think with with physicians um, below a certain age, it's going to be easier. And I would say, I mean, Dr. Kumar and Dr. Abbas are very senior, right? And it has taken a significant amount of pushing and data and and really just determination to keep moving it forward. But it's it's the persistence. It's, it's the same thing with up to date. It's just to keep pecking away at it and believing and knowing it and constantly checking and learning uh, myself. So I'm sure that I haven't become a zealot. I'm not doing this out of emotion. That I'm I'm really you know linking to the data. And that's one of the things that Dr. Graves has been so useful for me is being sure that we're both really solid in the data. Yeah, definitely. I, this is, I think this is a really important work that you're doing and it's, it's nice to see that it's starting to have some kind of effect and that people are starting to listen. Dr. Dayrup, this has been really interesting to, you know, take a look back at your career so far and, and talk about, and like I said, this important work that you're doing, uh, you know, with Robbins and, and with Dr. Graves and all these other things. And obviously I will, uh, link to your website and all your work in the show notes so people can uh, check it out for themselves. So uh, Dr. Andrea Dayrup, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure, Dennis. Thank you. Great big thanks to Dr. Dayrup. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. But besides that, I also realized that I did not feel like surgery was for me. I was more interested in the diagnostic portion of medicine like I really loved to be able to like diagnose is what I was kind of going for which is hard and certain like for me when I was originally entering surgery and and fun fact when I initially went into medical school I wanted to do family medicine I wanted to go in and, and go in do family medicine and be like all right like this is what I was doing and then I did clinic and I was like I'm not a family medicine doctor, I was so much more interested in pathophysiology and, and, and coming to diagnosis. And I was like, that's where I feel like I'm heading. I thought surgery okay. was that way of doing that, but it was actually pathology. And so I was able to take a elective with the, patho- the pathology department at the University of Buffalo. And they opened me with Buffalo Arms and they were so like gracious and amazing. And I, and I said, yeah, this is it. So midway, this was I think September is when I did this elected. I was like, yep. So I I got recommendation letters and applied to pathology and the history has written itself afterwards. You can hear more from Dr. Michael Williams in episode 79. There are quite a few takeaways from Dr. Darup's story. I think the first one is that she followed the things that were interesting to her. And so her career path wasn't a straight line and that's okay. And another part of it is as she had these opportunities come up for her, whether it was teaching at Duke or, you know, working on Robbins, she was able to take advantage of these opportunities and really, you know, do the deep dives like she was talking about. And this is something that's still happening to her to this day. But I think the most important lesson from this is when we were talking about her initial resistance to removing the teaching of race in medicine, And then as she looked at the data, she realized that this was true and she changed her mind about this issue. And the lesson is that that's okay to do when you look at the data and you realize that you might've been wrong about something, it's okay to change your mind about that. Because like I said at the beginning, pathology is science and that's the way that science works. I'll have links in the show notes to everything Dr. Andrea Dayrup. Don't forget you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. 
Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.